to the Passages Podcast. I'm Christy Cooney, and our guest this week is Claire Fisher. Claire's debut novel, All the Good Things, was published by Viking Penguin in June 2017. It's the story of Beth, a woman incarcerated for reasons at first unknown, writing to her infant daughter about her life before prison. The Guardian said the book had a tremendous power to move and disturb. Claire, thanks so much for coming on. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, the passage you've chosen is an excerpt from Carson McCullough's 1940 novel, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. Uh, I should say for listeners who haven't read the book that it's the story of a deaf mute called Singer living in a mill town in 1930s Georgia and four people that he gets to know after his only friend and fellow mute Antonopoulos is taken to an asylum. They are a drunk labourer called Jake Blunt, a black physician called Dr Copeland, a bar owner called Biff Brannan, and a 12-year-old girl called Mick, who becomes quite devoted to Singer after he begins boarding at her parents' house and who features in the passage that Claire has chosen. The narrative focuses on their lives in the town, their individual feelings of alienation, and their respective relationships with Singer, who they each go to see and talk to and often talk at. I should say as well that this discussion will inevitably wander across the novel, so will contain spoilers, and with that, I'll ask Claire Fisher to open the episode by reading once through her chosen passage. Thanks. In the night time, as soon as the kids were in bed, she was free. That was the most important time of all. A lot of things happened when she was by herself and it was dark. Right after supper, she ran out of the house again. She couldn't tell anybody about the things she did at night. And when her mama asked her questions, she would answer with any little tale that sounded reasonable. But most of the time, if anybody called her, she just ran away like she hadn't heard. That went for everybody except her dad. There was something about her dad's voice she couldn't run away from. He was one of the biggest, tallest men in the whole town. But his voice was so quiet and kindly that people were surprised when he spoke. No matter how much of a hurry she was in, she always had to stop when her dad called. This summer, she realised something about her dad she'd never known before. Up until then, she'd never thought about him as being a real, separate person. A lot of times, he would call her. She would go in the front room where he worked and stand by him a couple of minutes. But when she listened to him, her mind was never on the things he said to her. Then one night, she suddenly realised about her dad. Nothing unusual happened that night, and she didn't know what it was that made her understand. Afterwards, she felt older, and as though she knew him as good as she could know any person. Yet for some reason, she couldn't tell him about the things in her mind, about the hot, dark things. These nights were secret, and of the whole summer, they were the most important time. In the dark, she walked by herself, and it was like she was the only person in town. Almost every street came to be as plain to her in the night time as her own block, home block. Some kids were afraid to walk through strange places in the dark, but she wasn't. Girls were scared a man would come out from somewhere and put his teapot in them, like they were married. Most girls were nuts. If a person the size of Joe Louis or Mountain Man Dean would jump out at her and want to fight, she would run. But if it was somebody within 20 pounds of her weight, she would give him a good sock and go right on. The nights were wonderful, and she didn't have time to think about such things as being scared. Whenever she was in the dark, she thought about music, 
She felt like the whole town listened without knowing it was Mick Kelly. She learned a lot about music during these three nights in the summertime. When she walked out in the rich parts of town, every house had a radio. All the windows were open and she could hear the music very marvellous. After a while, she knew which houses tuned in for the programme she wanted to hear. There was one special house that got all the good orchestras. And at night, she would go to this house and sneak into the dark yard to listen. There was beautiful shrubbery around this house and she would sit under a bush near the window. And after it was all over, she would stand in the dark yard with her hands in her pockets and think for a long time. That was the realest part of all the summer, her listening to this music on the radio and studying about it. Thanks so much, Claire Fisher. Now tell us why you chose this book and what about it this passage captures for you. Um, well, first of all, when you asked me to come on and choose a book, I sort of, my heart sank because I always... Like, I never know how to answer that question. Like, what's your favourite book or what's the most important book? Uh, but this is a book I've been sort of rereading and thinking about a lot recently. So that was sort of one reason I chose it. Um, I, th- I read this book for the first time when I was about 19 or 20. Um, and I remember sort of, like, enjoying it, but sort of maybe feeling shut out of some parts, but really connecting with the character of Mick and kind of the way that Carson McCullers kind of takes on this really diverse cast of characters who are all kind of so strange and, yeah, so sort of outside of society in one way or another and kind of takes you right inside of them, which I suppose is what all fiction should do. Um, Anyway, then I reread it, like, quite recently and I just discovered so more. I think that's the joy of rereading things and especially, you know, if it's something good when you go back to it, you kind of discover a new novel there that you didn't see before. Um particularly like this passage because I think it really I mean there's a lot of controversy around this word but it just feels so authentic I think you just completely believe you're inside the mind of this 12 year old kind of strange girl uh, who I guess I could personally identify with slightly (laughs) but also uh, I just thought I really like the way she kind of depicted creativity um, and the imagination and kind of made quite kind of the quite internal amorphous experience of kind of trying to create something and having this kind of inner imaginative life kind of real and like when I think the last sentence I read was that was the realest part of all the summer it's sort of like a manifesto for the importance of the imagination which I think especially in this day and age where we sort of put so much weight on facts and figures and statistics and sort of external things I thought like yeah it's important to remember that you know the imagination can be real as well and it's like here um, Mick is exploring in the darkness so that could be seen as like metaphorical darkness I mean internal darkness um, but it's also it's through the conventions of realist fiction it feels like a convincing dark real town so you don't think oh this is a metaphor but yeah it does have this metaphorical ring to it so you get that kind of double like echo in your as I think kind of adds to its kind of Quality. Well, it's quite relentless, that isn't it? As well, there's not, there are no redeeming features about that town, particularly. No, no it's it's sort of a. She doesn't name it. I, I guess it's just meant to represent any small town in the American South. But you know, she furnishes it with enough detail that you can kind of picture an actual real place. But yet, yeah, still, feels has a very metaphorical quality at the same time. That kind of, I guess, that you get a sense in this passage. I think of this kind of 
mythical world existing alongside the real world um and that in her novelistic the world of this novel like the boundaries between inside outside imagination reality dream myth that they're not arranged in the way that we might most people might arrange them which i guess makes it kind of a unique reading experience well and she i mean she's a hopeful figure in the book isn't she because like you said they're all very different characters but they're all quite this sounds quite a trite thing to say about a book that's called the hearts of lonely hunter but they've all got their own kind of unique loneliness going mm. on and most of them are self self-inflicted yeah. you've got a drunk or someone who's just really proud and doesn't want to speak to his family and all the rest of it in the in the doctor um whereas for her and and probably for singer as well um there's this there's a sense of um that they want to break out of there's, there's a sense that they'd rather be able to break out of that loneliness and the fact that she goes on those nights and finds positive things in the fact that she goes out on her own and and hears this music and and kind of takes solace in that. There's a, she's a kind of glimmer of hope there, isn't she? Yeah, I think she she is a hopeful character. I mean, partly because of her age, um, but also yeah, like you said, those sort of nighttime, those nocturnal wanderings. It's like she's trying to connect and kind of see into other people's lives. Which I suppose, if you're trying to sort of do anything creative, that's it. I feel like creativity is hopeful, even if you're writing or making art about something sort of difficult or bleak it's an act of hope an effort to kind of reach out of your own internal self into someone else and she is constantly trying to do that kind of with her her music she has these she kind of hears like whole symphonies in her head um Carson McCullers herself was sort of a very talented pianist when she was young but then um her career was sort of ruined by, like, she got contracted rheumatic fever as a teenager really badly, and I think it sort of ruined her, like, physical agility, so she couldn't play, but then that was when she began to write, so I guess she had this personal link with music, and you can maybe feel that in the writing. What do you think? I mean, that's, it is quite impressive in that she's able to... You do get the, the sense, inevitably, when, when a 23-year-old woman is writing about a 12-year-old girl and teenager... There's probably some kind of semi-autobiographical element going on. How impressive for you is it as a as a fiction writer yourself that she manages to as well step out of that and come up with this kind of diverse cast of characters that all kind of interweave and, and all relate to one another in the way that they do? <laughs> um, yeah, very impressive. I mean, especially considering yeah, she was 23 when she when it was published. Um, I don't know if I could write this now, let alone when I was 23. Um, I think. You know, it's not a perfect novel. There are definite... Like, you can definitely see that maybe she connects more with, say, the Mick character than some of the others. Uh, there's certain times, I think, with some of the some of the other characters when you feel like maybe she's... They're slightly exaggerated or she's not quite imagined them as... She's not brought them to life with as much kind of gusto as maybe she was able to with the teenage girl character. But despite that, I think it is a very, there's a certain, there is a grace and a music to kind of, to the whole novel, to every sense. Like when I was reading that out, it was, I just felt like the rhythms and there was such a music to it. It was so easy to read aloud, mm. um, even though I hadn't really practiced it. Um, and I think that kind of is a testament to kind of the quality of the writing. Um, it's, it's very hard to say, I think, what makes a novel really work or why you personally connect with it. But I, for me, there's something in her writing that has a certain, sort of feeling like a kind of a very unique feeling when you read it and I guess that's her expressing her own subjectivity in her kind of unique way but I feel like every sentence the rhythm of it 
kind of conveys that even the sections which maybe are less convincing uh, still has that quality to kind of pull you along. Mm. Well, and, and Mick almost kind of becomes the, the main character, doesn't she? As the, as the book goes on, even if it starts out, it's, she's brought in because she's mm. um, the daughter of the people with whom Singer is boarding as the mute from the start. Yeah. Um, yeah. She kind of, as it goes on, she, she, the, the, she the, dominates the, more and more. Yeah. You can kind of tell that's where McCullough's interest really lies in like one of her later books, um, Member of the Wedding, takes a kind of similar character as the main character and many people like regard that as her best book. I, I don't know, I do, I think it's an amazing book but I still think there's something kind of, there's a lot to be got from this book and I think especially in the kind of social political climate we're living in where people are like, no, you must never write outside your own experience and you mustn't even think about other people's experiences. I think it's quite refreshing to read something where she's, okay, maybe she makes some mistakes, maybe you, there's times reading it where you can tell she's she's a white woman writing this. You know, there's some bits when she writes some of the black characters where you think, oh, that's, that's like not quite, that's not right. Um, or even when she describes like the middle age uh, the white middle-aged male cafe owner sometimes he doesn't he doesn't quite ring true but you still think well you know she really she really tried to put her heart and soul into it and that's kind of to be commended and I think something that maybe happens a bit less now in contemporary fiction I'll say vast generalization yeah. <laughs> um, can hear the twitter storm kicking yeah, off yeah. now <laughs> so I mean but there are definite parallels between um the character of Mick and and Beth in your book, they're both kind of, they're sort of isolated and innocent in their own ways, but they're also very intelligent and energetic and kind of held back by their surroundings mm-hmm. and the, the, their circumstances. Um, is there something that particularly interests you about that kind of character? And it, are there certain narratives that you think can only be told through that voice, with that voice? I don't know. I mean, I've always just been drawn to kind of writing child narrators and young narrators. I think partly because you can, they can be like a very interesting window into like the adult world. Um, and I just, I don't know, I just get pleasure from that sort of voice. I don't, I don't really know why. I mean, I guess that's sort of everyone's struggle, right? Isn't it? Everyone has kind of hopes and dreams and the world comes and crushes them. We need you to try and it's this sort of constant negotiation between kind of what you want and your ambition and your desires and kind of what is available. Um, but yeah, I guess I've always been interested in kind of the way that affects sort of women and girls um, and particularly how you can often get sort of pigeonholed as talented or not talented or um, successful or not sort of based largely on kind of circumstance and opportunity rather than innate ability and actually this novel is is quite heartbreaking with relation to Mick because you know at the end she's um she has all her dreams about writing symphonies and stuff but then her her family's in sort of dire financial straits and she has to go and get a job at Woolworths and I thought the the way it portrays her like like she actually volunteers to get this job at Woolworths because she feels bad for her family then there's a bit where she kind of describes her having this grueling sort of existence where she gets up, is on her feet all day, comes home, too knackered, just flakes out. It's probably something everyone is kind of like in there. I mean, she's experiencing this as like a 15-year-old, but actually reading it kind of reminded me of like how I felt in my first sort of jobs in my early 20s. I was like, shit, it's just real life, like just working all the time and you're knackered. And I've, I've met a lot of people who've kind of experienced that crushing kind of despair and like hopelessness that can come with that. Um, so, I mean, in a way, 
she I mean, she doesn't shy away from kind of showing that it's not a, it's not a fantasy novel you know it's not she doesn't shy from showing how reality can kind of crush that but yeah well, there's, a, there's this beautiful device that's used throughout as well, the, the idea of the inside room and the outside room. Mm, yeah. Where she says, um, school and the family and the things that happened every day were in the outside room. Mr. Singer was in both rooms. Foreign countries and plans and music were in the inside room. And then it's used purely as a kind of descriptive thing throughout the book. And and it's just, you know, a way of explaining her thoughts. But then at the end... She talked when she when she stood in Woolworths. She talks about she refers to finding it difficult to get mm. into the inside room, and she she she's she feels it kind of moving away from her. And then she decides, no, actually, I will be able to get back in there. But there's a kind of there's a hopeful upturn at the end, yeah. but it gets really quite depressing for a, about a page, <laughs> um, which I, I think is a is a really cool device. And it's an unusual. It's a way that only a child can see the world. That isn't it, I think in a way. Yeah, although I think it's kind of. I thought it's it's almost like the way she like that little extract you read out is. I love the way, the kind of matter-of-fact way she refers to it. Like, yeah, of course everyone has an inside and outside room, which is true, everyone does, mm. you know? Like, everyone, even if you don't think of yourself as creative or you don't hope to become an artist in certain area, like, you will. Like, everyone has their kind of secret desires, things they like to dream about. Um, and I just think her, one of the strengths of her writing is her ability to kind of, like, make real and speak about those kind of really silent, strange, internal experiences and I guess that as as someone who's like wrote my first novel whilst I was working full time and, you know, has always had that kind of struggle of like, how do you live and earn money and then find time to do something creative? And I kind of could really relate to that. Um, and I think if you're, cause yeah, it's, it's the way she's describing it literally as a room is quite simple, but it's so kind of true. I think like with creativity, it kind of it's like a space inside of you. And if you ignore it for a long time, it can close up or you can become scared of it Um but yeah, it sort of offers the hope of she realizes that it is important. She's young enough that she's sort of realized the importance of it to her. Mm. Well, and the reason that she's thinking about her dad in the passage that you read out at the start is that he's just tried to give her um, pocket money that she knows he can't afford. Um, so there's this sense, isn't there, that while she's uh, um, still young, the fact that she's a child allows the author to kind of um, tell the reader something about the town and the hardship there, um, but to keep all of that as a backdrop and to keep the focus on the people and their um, inward dilemmas. Yeah, I think that that's true. I think she, Nicola's kind of uses to make to touch on these sort of serious adult things. Um and, you know, as, when you're reading it as an adult, you know, you think, oh, shit, you know, this is bad. they could lose their house, you know, her dad's out of work. Um, but, yeah, you're kind of insulated from that a little bit. And it, she actually also uses it, I guess, to refer to the bigger political kind of landscape, like um, the sections when, so the sort of her sort of romance, Harry Minowitz, who's a Jewish boy, um, and he's, like, very passionate about, like, passionately against Hitler and the Nazis and she doesn't really know anything about that and you know you kind of you think you're reading it from the spectrum after the first world war you're like oh yeah this is set like sort of just at the beginning of the first world war no one really knows what's going to happen and it's quite it's quite interesting how she portrays that and kind of shows how these bigger global political events kind of weave into people's lives and quite a but without having to foreground it or make it like the main issue but I thought it felt more true to life of the way that, you know, you might just mention something that's happening internationally and 
has some importance, but it's not like. Whereas I don't know if I sometimes when authors are trying like shoehorn in something like that, it can just feel a bit forced. Mm. Well, Harry's an interesting character as well because in this kind of coming of age storyline for Mick, um, she doesn't really have any female friends um, or, or even friends her own age. I mean, he's the only one. Um, which I guess provides some of the context for why she ends up going on these midnight walks um, and eventually befriending Singer. Yeah, and I guess her lack of female friends means that kind of makes her more isolated. Um, maybe if she had close female friends, she would be able to share some of this, but she doesn't. So I guess Singer, well, for all the characters that gather around Singer, because he's a mute, they kind of see, they're able to imagine into a silence kind of the ideal companion. Uh, and I think because all of the characters are kind of have this slightly obsessional quality, like they have this thing that doesn't exist that they're trying to pursue, right? This impossible thing. Um, and so they, maybe they find it almost hard to communicate with, or be close to real people because real people are never going to kind of live up to that. Whereas Singer, they're able to make him into more a sort of God figure because he's silent. He doesn't reveal himself. He doesn't say, no, you're chatting bullshit. Like, <laughs> so they all think, oh, yeah, he really agrees with me. He's really on the same page with me, which I think we all, we all do that in life. Well, it's, there's, a, there's a kind of tragedy about the character of Singer, isn't there, in that the reason that everyone thinks about him like that is because he's he's referred to as a deaf mute, whereas mm. actually he's just a, he's just deaf in the 30s, basically, because um, he does refer to him. He, he could talk when he was younger, but oh, then people yeah. kept um, people kept giving him funny looks and he <laughs> thought he must be making a horrible sound, so he stopped. So there's there's this kind of weird thing that they're all really pleased about how how much he's willing to listen to them, whereas actually, the fact that he can't communicate properly is sort of imposed on him. It's it's mm. ab- above and beyond the biological, you know, his biological circumstances. But it's interesting as well that she's the only. I think she's. It's probably fair to say that she's the only character that doesn't. Im- she's not deluded in her relationship with Singer. It's it's fairly kind of genuine in that. She knows he's a deaf man who lives upstairs and she likes to be able to talk to him and she likes the fact that he has a radio and she can listen to music and he likes her and he likes her to mm. come on to him. Whereas with, particularly with um, Jake Blunt, the drunk, he, always going up and shouting at um, Singer that he's, oh, you know, you know. And, and then at some point Singer's writing a letter and he says this, this, this guy always comes up and I don't know what he thinks I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, no, that's true. Uh, I think... Jake Blount, the um, the drunk. I mean, he's by far the most sort of deluded and kind of irritating characters. I think you know, as a reader, you feel like, oh, for God's sake, like, I would not want to meet this person. <laughs> like, um, and there's a bit at the beginning where he's so drunk when he first meets um, Singer, he doesn't even realise he's a deaf mute, and then someone else refers to him as that, and then he's like, oh shit, like that guy, so that guy didn't even hear me. But then he, yeah, he quickly. He sort of has these little moments of self-knowledge and then sort of discards it for his kind of obsession and his delusions. Um, was he, I guess, Mick is maybe somewhat, I would say she's maybe somewhat deluded. She's it's deluded in a kind of, in the sense of her you know, kind of like innocence. Mm. I guess he's part of that kind of innocent view of the world. Um, I think she too, what she likes about him is he's someone she can really confess to and explore these strange things, changes that are happening to her that she can't tell her dad or her close female friends or whoever. Um, I would say there's still an element of kind of delusion, but in a more sort of subtle and measured way than, as I think, the drunk, oh, he's, he's, he's a drunk and he's 
a political radical and that kind of blinds him. He has a very strict way of viewing the world. Mm. He's kind of... Well, I think the same thing's true of the, of the to, to an extent, of the Black Doctor as well. Mm. The Black Doctor kind of decides that... Um, because every, basically everyone in, in, in this town in 1930s Georgia is um, racist to one degree or another. Um, and I think it's probably true, to be fair to Singer, that he, he isn't in, in the same way. But the doctor kind of comes to see him as this mm. the most virtuous white man he he can imagine. Um, whereas, you know, it might be that if Singer could fit in better with everybody else when he's at the restaurant, he might not be like that. Mm. I don't know. Um, so I guess that's, yeah, that's what the extent there's There's a more, I guess, a more adult kind of um, uh, delusion going on. There. Yeah. Um, I guess another uh, another kind of recurring theme in this book is obviously again is is the loneliness but the fact that it's kind of maintained by that one way dialogue a lot mm. of the time the fact that these the fact that these kind of characters are quite solitary mm. is maintained by the fact that they're all either just talking at singer or singers writing to antonopolis and his, his mute friends who never replies <laughs> and when he goes to visit him he, he doesn't um, respond much so i guess there's another way that that kind of sense of isolation is maintained in all of them yeah i think um Something I read that McCullough wrote about this book where she said she wanted it to be like uh, like a piece of music with lots of kind of recurring motifs and patterns. And I think you can see that it is all very, that all these kind of echoes and patterns is all very carefully put together in that kind of aesthetic way. And I think that kind of makes it quite satisfying and pleasurable to read, to kind of pick out those patterns. And... Mm. I wanted to touch on an, on an episode that comes quite late on in the book, um, but involves um, Mick and Biff Brannan, um, because it gets quite dark quite suddenly, um, and I I didn't anticipate it at all. Um, so D- D- Brannan's known Mick a long time and is a family friend, and she comes in his bar sometimes, but she thinks that he doesn't even like her. Um, and then there's this section where he begins to sort of lust after her. Um so I'll just read this excerpt. Um, he, he leaves his bar at night and it says, uh, Biff held the collar of his coat close to his neck. Alone in the street, he felt out of pocket. The wind blew cold from the river. He should turn back and stay in the restaurant where he belonged. He had no business going to the place where he was headed. For the past four Sundays, he had done this. He had walked in the neighbourhood where he might see Mick. And there was something about it that was not quite right. Yes, wrong. He had done nothing wrong, but in him he felt a strange guilt. Why? The dark guilt in all men, unreckoned and without a name. So, I mean, that... that Nothing eventuates from that, but what do you think is the purpose of that episode? Um, I mean, is it just another exploration of human sexuality as part of mixed coming of age or um i kind of so with from sort of his point of view i felt like that was part of his trajectory where so at the beginning he's with his wife quite a loveless relationship with his wife they run this all-night cafe together then she dies and he's actually sort of it's not really very sad like he he didn't really love her he didn't really love her so he's sort of like grieving for her but maybe not in the conventional way and he feels he felt kind of unsatisfied by her um and then he starts to so he's in the restaurant he starts to form the relationship with singer 
and um and Mick comes in often and he kind of he has a sort of I guess what initially is portrayed as quite like a fatherly attitude to her like he quite enjoys giving her like she comes by a milkshake we get her a milkshake there's something about her that kind of intrigues him and kind of arouses these fatherly sort of feelings of like he wants to care for her like he doesn't really do very much she thinks that because of that she stole some sweets once for him he's angry with her and so she's really suspicious for a long time in the book and I, I just quite like that kind of because you're you um it's written in alternating perspective you kind of know when you're reading her her like paranoia that he's angry at her that he isn't he actually quite likes her and so it's quite it's quite poignant it's quite I thought that was quite moving really um but yeah as you say as the book progresses and he kind of I guess the length of time after his wife's gone he kind of starts to kind of really realize that he really is alone in the world um he maybe starts to focus fixate on mix even more um but I actually just thought it was quite quite brave the way she she doesn't shy from kind of following that path of okay what does he do like yeah he doesn't he doesn't touch her doesn't do anything to her but I thought that that little passage you read was really like acutely observed and kind of the way he he sort of just has he knows there's something a bit wrong and not a bit suspects in his feelings about her but he still has those feelings and I guess that's something probably everyone can relate to in some way you know having kind of strange desires or feeling that they there's something wrong with them in some way um and I think a lot almost all of McCullough's books they all have kind of slightly strange or especially from modern point of view we see like sort of questionable relationships or romantic urges or desires um and I don't think she does necessarily intimate that it's a romantic urge he Mm -hmm. has I think it's more just he has this interest in her, sort of slightly obsession with her. I mean, he knows that's not quite right, but I, yeah, I thought she's, yeah, I think I feel like fiction's a place you can explore those sort of things. Well, to come back to what you were saying earlier, is that still? I mean, do you worry at all that that's it's people are becoming less um, willing to give authors the benefit of the doubt when they try and explore those kind of things now? I don't think so. I don't. I don't know. I think, you know, <laughs> think of how many crime novels are written. As everyone doesn't start accusing the authors of uh, mass murders or anything. Um, I think fiction is a place, I guess, where you can almost like it is a safe space where you, you can explore like pain and suffering and desire in a way that you might not be able to in real life um, and kind of show. I, I feel like fiction is about showing kind of human mind, human heart, and as much kind of complexity and honesty as possible. And that obviously includes kind of dark places as well. So I think it's kind of, if we say that you can't explore this or that, that's, you're censoring it, really. Um. And I, I think that's a, an excellent note on which to end. So I'll ask you to close the episode by um, reading once more this passage from Carson McCullough's The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. In the night time, as soon as the kids were in bed, she was free. That was the most important time of all. A lot of things happened when she was by herself, and it was dark. Right after supper, she ran out of the house again. She couldn't tell anybody about the things she did at night, and when her mama asked her questions, she would answer with any little tale that sounded reasonable. But most of the time, if anybody called her, she just ran away like she hadn't heard.
that went for everybody except her dad. There was something about her dad's voice she couldn't run away from. He was one of the biggest, tallest men in the whole town. But his voice was so quiet and kindly that people were surprised when he spoke. No matter how much of a hurry she was in, she always had to stop when her dad called. This summer, she realised something about her dad she had never known before. Up until then, she had never thought about him as being a real, separate person. A lot of times, he would call her. She would go in the front room where he worked and stand by him a couple of minutes. But when she listened to him, her mind was never on the things he said to her. Then one night, she suddenly realised about her dad. Nothing unusual happened that night, and she didn't know what it was that made her understand. Afterwards, she felt older and as though she knew him as good as she could know any person. Yet for some reason, she couldn't tell him about the things in her mind, about the hot, dark things. These nights were secret, and of the whole summer, they were the most important time. In the dark, she walked by herself, and it was like she was the only person in town. Almost every street came to be as plain to her in the night time as her own home block. Some kids were afraid to walk through strange places in the dark, but she wasn't. Girls were scared a man would come out from somewhere and put his teapot in them like they were married. Most girls were nuts. A person the size of Joe Louie or Mountain Man Dean would jump out at her and want to fight. She would run. But if it was somebody within 20 pounds her weight, she would give him a good sock and go right on. The nights were wonderful, and she didn't have time to think about such things as being scared. Whenever she was in the dark, she thought about music. While she walked along the streets, she would sing to herself. And she felt like the whole town listened without knowing it was Mick Kelly. She learned a lot about music during these three nights in the summertime. When she walked out in the rich parts of town, every house had a radio. All the windows were open and she could hear every music, very marvellous. After a while, she knew which houses tuned in for the programme she wanted to hear. There was one special house that got all the good orchestras. And at night, she would go to this house and sneak into the dark yard to listen. There was beautiful shrubbery around this house, and she would sit under a bush near the window. And after it was all over, she would stand in the dark yard with her hands in her pockets and think for a long time. That was the realest part of all the summer, her listening to this music on the radio and studying about it. Clifford, thanks so much for coming on the Pastures podcast. Thanks for having me. <laughs>